passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. In December of last year, many of you are familiar with the tragedy that took place in San Bernardino, California, where a married couple uh, entered a facility and shot and killed 14 people and injured another 22. The next day, the headline of the New York Daily News read, God isn't fixing this. The message of the headline was clear. Prayer doesn't work. There isn't a God, and even if there is, he's not to be trusted. In 2004, a tsunami rocked most of uh, the, many of the nations in, surrounding the Indian Ocean, affecting dozens of countries as far as Africa, with estimated 250,000 people left dead from that tragedy. One reporter in Thailand summed up the thought of many people, this tragedy proves that there is not a God. This reporter looked at the hundreds of thousands of people who lost their lives. This reporter looked at the billions of dollars worth of damage and the disease that was running rampant in these underdeveloped countries. This reporter concluded... There can't be a God who is good. And if there is a God, he cannot be trusted. We seem to see these kind of tragedies taking place just about every single week. Earlier this past week, Boko Haram uh, took uh, it upon themselves to kill by burning alive 75 children in northern Nigeria. And as you hear these stories... Of tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. The the unbelievably difficult question that each of us has to wrestle with, especially as we believe in God, is can God be trusted? Can we trust God who says that he's in charge, who says that he's good, who says that he knows what's going on? Can we trust God? I'll be honest, in my weaker moments, I've wrestled with the question of why God allows such senseless tragedies in the aftermath of these things. Begs the question, can God be trusted? For those who are on the outside of the church who who don't follow God, the answer is a pretty easy one. At least that's what they think. It is obviously not. This God cannot be trusted. Even for us who are on the inside of church, it is a difficult question. It's an important question for us to wrestle with about whether God is truly trustworthy. And and most of us, we'll just be honest here, most of us would readily affirm that God is trustworthy, that we can trust God because, after all, that's what the Bible tells us. But oftentimes that doesn't affect the way that we live our lives day to day. As we see these tragedies, we ask, where is God in the midst of them? 
as we see these tragedies and we wonder where God is, as we are faced with, with times where we either have to trust God, who we, who we say is trustworthy, or we trust ourselves, oftentimes we decide to trust our own power, our own strength, our own bank account. The question, can I trust God? Can we trust God? Is God trustworthy? On the surface is a relatively easy question, but as we go deeper, it is one that is much more complex as we wrestle through it. As I mentioned, we're in Genesis 18 this morning, and Genesis 18 attempts to answer that question. It attempts to answer whether God is really trustworthy, and it attempts to put our trust in the right place by saying our trust should be found in God and in God alone. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 18. As we explore this passage, we're going to see that it's really just two stories. It's two stories of God at work in the life of Abraham, both answering the question, can God be trusted? And both answer that question with a resounding yes, God can be trusted. Even in your darkest moments, God is trustworthy. If you look at the first 15 verses of Genesis 18, it tells us a story that God is faithful. God is trustworthy to fulfill his promises. God will keep the promises that he has made to us. In the latter half of Genesis 18, it tells us that when tragedy tragedy strikes, God is still trustworthy. That we can trust God to be the judge of all the earth. That we can trust God to run the earth the right way. If you're not a Christian this morning, you have some serious concerns with the character of God. I pray that Genesis 18 is an eye-opener to you because it tells us about God's character. And it tells us that God is trustworthy. Now, if you are a Christian, I think that this passage is just as important. Because as we encounter the character of God, it inspires us to live in a holy way. So as we approach God's word, let us pray one more time. God, thank you for your word again, and I just pray that as we look at the story of Abraham, and we see that Abraham is wrestling through trusting you, that you would be with us, that you would walk with us, and that you would inspire that same sort of trust in us, according to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned that Genesis 18 really contains two different stories, both of them looking at this question of, can I trust God. And as we open up in Genesis 18, we really encounter a fascinating story. It's a fascinating encounter between God, uh, disguised as a man, and Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, God appears to Abraham after, after 13 years of silence. And he appears to him and he promises him a son once more. He says, Abraham, I have not forgotten my promise to you. I will give you a son at this time next year. He assures that the promise is intact, and then he departs. Genesis 18, he reappears disguised as a man with two of his angels, also described as men. And as we see, Abraham doesn't fully understand who is appearing to him right here at the beginning of this passage. At least not yet. But that doesn't stop Abraham from showing lavish hospitality to these people. As they are walking past his, tra- his tent, he begs them to stay, to rest during the heat of the day. And then he has himself and Sarah prepare a large feast from scratch for these people. And not only does he prepare them a large feast, but he refuses to eat with them. He instead decides that he will serve them, that he will wait and make sure that they have every single thing that they need. And here we see this lavish hospitality 
from Abraham. After supper, they, they begin this conversation. They strike up this conversation with Abraham. And that's where we're going to start this morning. And, and just a little bit of context. Remember, Abraham has waited 25 years for God to fulfill his promise. It's been 25 years since God first appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and promised him a son. God has promised him multiple times over the course of the next 25 years, but nothing has yet happened. And the question that Abraham and Sarah wrestle through over and over is, is God trustworthy? Is God able to fulfill his promises? Is he going to actually follow through on this? Or is he just going to continue promising us a child without actually delivering? I think that's an important question for us this morning as well. God promises us many things in the New Testament. That's an important question for us to wrestle with. Can we trust God to provide for us, to fulfill the promises that he has made to us, to his people in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 18, verse, we're going to start in verse 9, where it says this. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. See, as this meal finishes, they ask Abraham a question, and that question reveals to him a little bit about who they are. They ask, where is Sarah? Well, the interesting thing is, Abraham has never told them, told these strangers, that he has a wife. For that matter, he hasn't even told them that Sarah's name has been changed. It begins to indicate that this is someone special that Abraham is talking to. And that's made explicit in verse 10, where one of these men opens his mouth and the text says that the Lord said. Abraham realizes that he's not just hosting some traveling strangers, but he instead is hosting the God of the universe and two of his members of his heavenly court. Before Abraham is able to respond, God answers or says, you are going to have a son. He reiterates the promise that has been made in the previous chapter. And the text doesn't say this, but I I think it's safe to assume that if you imagine Abraham at this moment, just a few days before he heard God say, I'm going to give you a son within the next year, and it's going to be through Sarah. It's the first thing he's heard from God in 13 years. He responds in this joyful disbelief, and he's had a little bit of time to think about it. And then God appears to him again and says, you know what? The same thing I said in Genesis 17 is still going to happen. Sarah is still going to have a son. You are still going to have a son within this next year. And I just imagine that Abraham is unable to speak because he's just so filled with joy. He's so excited about the fact that this promise has been reaffirmed just a few days after receiving it earlier. As we see this text, is isn't just focusing on Abraham's response. It's actually focusing on Sarah. Sarah, who is sitting in the tent, is able to overhear this conversation between Abraham and these men. And that's where the text picks up in Genesis chapter 18, verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself and said, After I am worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? This text is is really... 
emphasizing how old Sarah and Abraham are. After all, Sarah hears the promise of God, but in spite of the repetition of this promise, she just can't believe that God is going to come through. The realities that are facing her are too big, too significant for God to overcome. Throughout this passage, it it emphasizes how old Sarah and Abraham are. Just take a look at it phrase by phrase. First, Abraham and Sarah are old. It makes that a very clear point in this passage. Abraham is about 99 years old. Sarah is almost 90 years old. Abraham and Sarah are old. Second thing this passage tells us is that Sarah is post-menopausal. She has passed that stage of her life long before, and she is somewhat justified in her unbelieving laughter that, that she says to herself and as she laughs to herself because it is medically impossible for her to get pregnant. That's where her disbelief comes from. And then the text tells us that Sarah calls herself frail. The text says that Sarah is worn out. This is a, a phrase that is used elsewhere in scripture to refer to uh, garments of clothing that are, are past their usefulness and they're so worn out that they get thrown away. It's also used to refer to bones that are brittle and about to break. And Sarah looks at herself and says, I am worn out. I am frail. It is impossible for God to come through for me. If God didn't provide for me when it was still possible, when I was still young, when I still was able to have children, if God didn't provide me a child, then what makes me think What makes him think that I'm going to have a child now? Sarah is focused on the realities facing her. And as she hears the promise of God, it just sounds too fictitious for her to believe. You know what? Sarah is absolutely right. It is completely impossible for her to have a child. There is no chance for her to have a child. There's no way that this can just suddenly, spontaneously happen. It's going to take more than a medical miracle for this to take place. Nothing but divine intervention will lead to Sarah having a child. And let's be honest, if you're in Sarah's situation, she has waited 25 years nearly for this promise to come through. She's heard this promise over and over again, and God has waited In his infinite wisdom, he has waited over 24 years to answer this. So what makes Sarah think that this is going to happen now? Sarah is focused on her circumstances, on doubt and unbelief, but she isn't thinking the right way. And that's how God responds to her here in Genesis chapter 18. Sarah is thinking from a very worldly perspective, and God challenges that approach, that that thinking here in, in verse 13, where it says this, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. You see, Sarah is missing the point of what God wants to do in her life. What God is wanting to do in this entire process of making them wait for decades before they have a child. As we talked about last week, God doesn't want this to be something that takes place naturally. God wants this to be something that is supernatural. He wants there to be no other explanation of how Sarah and Abraham are having a son other than himself. If you notice, Sarah is reprimanded for her unbelief. 
But in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham responds in a very similar way. In Genesis 18, Sarah responds in unbelieving laughter. In Genesis 17, Abraham responds in unbelieving laughter. So what's the difference here? Why does God rebuke Sarah, but he doesn't rebuke Abraham in verse 17? Is there a difference? The text isn't explicit, but, but I, I think it went something like this. Abraham told Sarah the news of Genesis chapter 17. After all, can you really blame him about not keeping that a secret? Would you be able to keep that news a secret? Just uh, imagine after a long day, Abraham and Sarah, they're sitting on their front porch. They're drinking some iced tea. They're watching as, as things are beginning to get a little cool and they begin talking. And Sarah says, so Abraham, what'd you do today? And Abraham says, oh, nothing. God appeared to me. We talked for the first time in 13 years. Sarah says, oh, okay, well, that's nice. What did he say? Well, he said something about a covenant, you know, that thing that took place about uh, 10 years ago, 13 years before. And he also mentioned something about circumcision. Oh, okay, well, that's nice. You say anything else? No, I don't, I don't think so. Of course, Abraham is going to mention that Sarah is going to have a son. After all, that's the the primary focus of Genesis chapter 17. And so Sarah has already heard this promise that she will bear a son from God. Uh, A beautiful story, a wonderful miracle that she's going to bear a son within the next year. And she responds in unbelief. Here in Genesis chapter 18, God repeats his promise. God says, you know what, Sarah, you are going to have a son within the next year. And Sarah responds in unbelief as well. You see, Sarah is focused on her circumstances. She's not focused on God. She thinks that her circumstances are all-powerful. She doesn't think that God is all-powerful. And the question here, the, the very pointed question The crucial question, not just for Sarah, but for each of us, because it cuts right to the heart, is found here in verse 13, where God says, it's anything, excuse me, in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for this God who created everything out of nothing? Is anything too hard for this God who paints a beautiful sunset each and every night? Is anything too hard for this God who created the sweetness of honey and the cool, beautiful feeling, the refreshing feel of a cool breeze on a hot day? Is anything too hard for this God who filled the heavens with billions upon billions of stars and planets and galaxies? Is anything too hard for this God who created and carved the mountains that fill us with awe? Is there anything too hard for this God who fills the oceans with countless forms of life? Is there anything too hard for this God who in his infinite wisdom forms humanity in the mother's womb in his own image, including you and including me. No, Sarah, nothing is too hard for the Lord. No obstacle, no impossibility, no circumstance can thwart him, can thwart his plan. There is nothing that is too hard for God. And shame on Sarah for thinking so. Shame on Sarah for thinking that this was too hard for God. But before we decide to deride Sarah too much for her unbelief, look in the mirror. 
Look in the mirror and shame on us for doubting the power of God to provide for us in financially difficult times. Shame on us for doubting whether God will take care of us. Shame on us for wondering if God is able to overcome the sins that we struggle with. The words here to Sarah are just as much for you and just as much for me. Don't look down on Sarah because of her unbelief. Instead, rejoice that nothing is too powerful for God. In the book of Acts, Paul is standing trial. As he's standing trial, he he is asked to defend uh, the resurrection, essentially. And he says this in in Acts chapter 26, verse 8. I love this. I think it's one of the most powerful, simple defenses of the resurrection that I've ever heard. He says this. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul is saying, if God is who he says he is, the resurrection shouldn't surprise us. It goes far much further than that. If God is who he says he is, then answered prayer should not surprise us. If God is who he says he is, victory over sin should not surprise us. God is utterly powerful. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And that's really what this first story is getting at for us this morning. As we try to answer the question of why can we trust God, it says this, because God is utterly powerful. Because God is utterly powerful. We can trust him because he is strong enough that nothing is too difficult for him. As we continue in this story, we see that Sarah is left awestruck. And she's just in this silence before God because of this revelation of God's great power. In fact, she responds by straight up lying and saying, you know what, God, I I didn't laugh because I believe you. And it's this silence of God's power. From this point, These men continue on to their final destination. As they're going forward on their destination, Abraham decides to accompany them as custom. And I just want to to imagine here uh, of Abraham in this situation. After all, he's just realized that this is God. Of course, Abraham is going to walk with this man. He's going to walk with this God as, as long as he possibly can, just like his grandson Jacob eventually wrestles with God, refuses to let go of God until he receives a blessing. Abraham refuses to let God out of his sight. So they continue forward towards Sodom, although Abraham doesn't know that. And they're journeying on for a while, and then God decides that he's going to tell Abraham about his plans and about his purpose for what he is about to do. Take a look, starting in verse 20 says this, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Just imagine Abraham. He's excited to be traveling with God. He's eager to follow God wherever God is going. And then God says what he's about to do. And Abraham stops in his tracks when he hears the mission of God, he shudders at the thought of Sodom. You see, Abraham lives relatively close to Sodom. He's aware of what takes place in Sodom. He's aware of the darkness that dwells there. 
He's aware of the things that the people that live in Sodom do. And if God would have said, if the God who said, walk before me, if the God who said, be blameless, is headed to Sodom, there's only one explanation for what he's about to do there. Abraham realizes what is about to happen. He sees that God is about to take off for Sodom to see just how wicked this city is. And I I don't want us to think that this passage is telling us that God didn't understand the wickedness of Sodom until he visited Sodom. God was well aware of how wicked Sodom was before this moment. This is really just a a way of, of describing what God is about to do to show us that God is thorough. That God is fully just. That he is going to take his time. That this is not a rash decision to go and to bring judgment upon the people of Sodom. He wants to make sure that everything that he has heard is true. In the same way in Genesis chapter 11, God has to come down to the Tower of Babel to see what is taking place. So also, God now has to come to Sodom to see if this outcry is true. Now notice why God is headed for Sodom. He's headed to Sodom in the first place because the outcry against the city is so great. The sin of the city is so grave that something must be done. Anytime the word outcry is used in scripture, it's referring to an injustice that's being done. We'll look next week as we get into Genesis 19. We'll look at the specific injustices that are taking place. But every single time an outcry is made in scripture, it's an injustice and a cry for help that is taking place because of that thing. Here's the irony. This outcry against Sodom is coming from Sodom itself. The people of Sodom are crying out for God to save themselves from themselves. God is going to check on this outcry. And so he continues forward in response to this outcry by being utterly just. And that's really the next reason that we see why we can trust God, because God is utterly just. You see, God is headed to Sodom to make sure that he is doing the right thing in bringing judgment upon the people of Sodom. That God is doing the right thing by responding to this outcry. If God is just, that means that there will be justice. God will intervene for the oppressed. That God will intervene for those who are mistreated. That God will intervene for those who are maligned. In the same way, because God is just, that means that those who are oppressed, that those who are wicked, those who are immoral, will have to answer for their wickedness. And God is headed for Sodom. See, this is a radically unpopular topic today, the the topic of God's judgment. There's a book out there written a couple years ago called America's Four Gods. And this is a book written by a a sociologist. And in this, the sociologist surveys thousands of Americans about their view of God. As he's talking to all of these different Americans, he, he reaches this conclusion that over the past few decades, our understanding of who God is has changed dramatically. The number of people who still believe in God isn't all that more significant than it was just a few decades ago. But the view of God has changed significantly over the past few decades. Over the past few decades, the number of people who don't believe that there is a judgment, that God will bring judgment, has increased dramatically. 
The idea of divine judgment is something that is very offensive to our culture. I'm sure that you have uh, encountered this form of pseudo-piety before when someone thinks that they're being compassionate, when someone thinks that they're being tolerant and being gracious, and they say, I can't believe in a God who blank. I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. I can't believe in a God who would send good people to hell. This is the culture that we live in. It's a rejection of the biblical truth of judgment. And it looks at heaven as an inalienable right rather than a divine gift of grace. John Piper, describing this problem in our culture, sums it up this way. He says this, Man-centered humans are amazed that God should withhold life and joy from his creatures. But the God-centered Bible is amazed that God should withhold judgment from sinners. Our culture is so man-centered, so focused on humanity, that it is completely adverse to the idea of divine judgment and the idea of divine justice. We live in a culture that is man-centered, not God-centered. And at its root is a complete... At this, root of this distaste in God's judgment really comes from our culture's complete comfortability. In other words, the reason why we don't like talking about the judgment of God in our culture is because we haven't really experienced injustice in our lives. We really haven't experienced injustice in the way that many people throughout the world experience it today. That we haven't experienced injustice in the same way that people throughout world history have experienced it in the past. The idea that there will be no judgment may sound comforting to us, but it is not comforting to someone whose entire life has been destroyed as they have been kicked out of their home in Syria. The idea of no judgment is not good news to someone whose daughter was burned alive by radical Muslims in Nigeria. It is, in fact, the greatest injustice of all. See, our culture finds the idea of divine judgment to be appalling. But if you go to the other side of the world, it's not divine judgment that is appalling, but it's the idea of forgiveness that is appalling. To turn the other cheek is appalling. Just because our culture doesn't like something doesn't mean that it is therefore wrong. And instead reminds us that we should hold loosely to our culture. Why should we trust God? Because he is just. That's a warning, yes. It's a warning to make sure that we live in a right way because God is just and there will be judgment for those who are not found in Christ. But it's also a word of hope. It's a word of hope to those who suffer injustice. Those who have ever been slandered at work or at school. Those who have been fired without just cause. Those who have been taken advantage of. Those who are born into unjust situations. The Bible is 100% clear that there will be justice for every single wrong that you have experienced. That justice will be meted out either on that person or on the cross. And Jesus, why can we trust God? Because he is 100% completely, utterly just.
as we continue looking at this passage, we see that Abraham is completely shocked by this news of judgment. He can't believe that God is actually going to bring judgment upon the people of Sodom. And so he responds in verse 22 with these words. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Notice Abraham's response here. Abraham doesn't first tell God that he is wrong for wanting to bring judgment upon Sodom. Abraham is well aware of how wicked the Sodomites are. He knows that God is right. That God is completely justified in bringing destruction and judgment upon Sodom. That's the first thing. He doesn't do that. Second thing, notice that he doesn't run ahead to Sodom. He doesn't run ahead and try to get people to repent like Jonah does in the book of Jonah in Nineveh. He knows that that would be ineffective. Instead, he opts for the only thing that he knows what to do. He decides to stand before God. He boldly approaches the throne of God to appeal not to God's justice, but to appeal to God's mercy. You see, he knows that God is completely and utterly just, but he also knows that God is completely and utterly merciful. And that's our last truth this morning. Why can we trust God? Because God is completely, utterly merciful. We experience that mercy each and every day in our lives. And that's why Abraham intercedes on behalf of those who are in Sodom because he knows that God is merciful. Take a look, starting in verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing. I'm going to start in verse 24. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous in that city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Here Abraham answers a poignant question. If you notice, these two stories both hinge on very, very pointed, poignant questions. The first story, it is, is anything too hard for the Lord? And here it is, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham recognizes that God is powerful. He comes to grips with who God is. And he says, you know what? God, are you just? Are you really going to do something that is against your character? That's really a question each and every one of us has to ask as well. Do we believe that the judge of all the earth will do right? Do you really believe that the judge of all the earth will do right in your life? When you experience hardship, when you experience wrongdoing, when you do wrongdoing, do you believe that the judge of all the earth will do right? This is a crucial understanding for our salvation. This is an understanding of God that separates God from the ancient gods that surrounded Abraham in that day. It separates God from the, the gods that, separate, uh, that are found in our culture today as well. That God is both merciful and just. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And we see that God does what is right. We see this combination of justice and mercy 
most clearly at the cross. It is at the cross that we see the righteousness of God, the justice of God, and the mercy of God, the grace of God meet. Where God is completely and utterly just, and God is at the same time completely and utterly merciful. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The testimony of the Bible says unequivocally, yes. We're all familiar with the rest of this passage. Abraham argues God down from 50 to 45 righteous people to 40 to 30, then 20, then 10. And then Abraham realizes there aren't even 10 in Sodom. And so he just stops talking. He decides to come before God, and he knows that God is infinitely merciful, but also that God is infinitely just. And so he just decides that it's, it's time to stop talking because he is the judge of the earth, and he will do what is right. If you look at these two passages, these two stories this morning, and you ask the question, can we trust God? The answer is a thousand times yes. Friends, you can trust God to do what is right. That might sound obvious. It might sound like something that you have heard before, but it is an often forgotten truth. You can trust God to do what is right in your life, in the life of your spouse, your children, your friends, your family members. Trust God to do what is right. Four ways that that works itself out in our lives. First, remember God's power. Remember God's power. In 1904 and 1905, there was a great revival in Wales. It's called the Welsh Revival. Many of us have probably never heard of it, but thousands, tens upon thousands of people became Christians during that time. Uh, It spread to a number of different countries. It actually still has an influence on the way that we live today. And one of the people who was at the forefront of this movement, his name was Evan Roberts. He said this, it was simple and yet profound. He said, the church of Christ on its knees is invincible. The church of Christ on its knees is invincible. Evan Roberts said this because he knew what sparked revival. He knew what sparked revival in our own hearts. He knows what gives us the power to put sin to death, whether it's sexual sin or whether it's unbelief or whether it's anxiety or thousands of others of different types of sin. It's the power of God. The church on her knees is invincible because it's not relying on their own power, but on the power of God. Remember God's power. Second, take God's justice seriously. Take God's justice seriously. That serves as a warning. God's justice is a very real thing, even though we may not see it that way. But even as it is a warning... It is also a sign of hope. As I mentioned earlier, it is a source of hope when we are wronged. Randy Alcorn is a theologian on the West Coast. He describes the heart of this paradox. He says, God's judgment is not evil. It is where evil gets punished. God's judgment is not pleasant, appealing, or encouraging. But God's judgment is morally good because a good God must punish evil. We hate God's judgment precisely because we don't hate evil. We hate it also because we deserve it. We cry out for true and lasting judgment and justice, then fault God for taking evil too seriously by administering eternal judgment. We can't have it both ways. 
Sin is evil. Just punishment of sin is good. Hell is an eternal correction of, and compensation for evil. It is justice. To fear and dread hell is understandable. But to argue against hell is to argue against justice. Friends, take God's justice seriously. Third thing, because of God's mercy, boldly approach his throne. Boldly approach his throne. Let us follow the example of Abraham as he looks at the mercy of God, as he appeals to the mercy of God. He stands before God, boldly approaches God, and intercedes for the people of Sodom. Friends, the mercy of God should also fuel us to bold prayer as well. Dwight uh, D.L. Moody, many of you are familiar with Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Uh, He's the founder. In the 1800s, he went all the way to London, from the Midwest to London, to see a man named Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is is known uh, universally as probably the greatest English preacher in world history. As he approached this church service and and he he experienced this worship worship service, he wrote later that he wasn't overcome by the congregational singing, even though it was the best congregational singing he's ever heard. He said he wasn't overcome by Spurgeon's preaching, even though it was the best preaching he'd ever heard. What was so significant to him about his visit to see Spurgeon was Spurgeon's prayer. He says this, he says, He seemed to have such an access to God that he could bring down the power from heaven. That that was the great secret of its influence and success. Charles Spurgeon, Abraham, both of these men prayed boldly, clinging to the mercy of God. Praying for the spread of the gospel. Praying for those who don't know Christ. Praying for the sick. Praying for those who do know Christ to grow in holiness. Spurgeon. And so many others lived lives that exemplified this truth. Because of God's mercy, boldly approach his throne. Boldly approach the throne of grace and mercy. And finally, live in light of your calling. Live in light of your calling. You notice we skipped over Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 19 because of time. I want to just go back and read that. This is why God decides to tell Abraham about what he's about to do. He says this. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord might bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Notice the reason why God decides to tell Abraham about the coming judgment. He tells Abraham about this coming judgment upon Sodom, first because he has chosen Abraham to be his ambassador in the world, but even more significantly than that, the implications of verse 19 are that Abraham would tell his children about the reality of the coming judgment. Not only that, but Abraham and his children would live in a way of righteousness, in a way of justice. God is telling Abraham about the coming judgment so that Abraham could mirror the same justice, the same righteousness of God in his own life. And that Abraham would teach his children to do the exact same thing. 
This passage is telling us to live in light of the calling of God that he places on our lives. To live in light of the justice of God. To live in light of the mercy of God. To live in light of the power of God. And from that place, to trust God. To trust God to do what is right in every facet of your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for your justice. And thank you for your mercy. God, I pray that as we think of your character, as we think of who you are, as we think of what you have done for us, that we would live out our calling as a response to that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.